Another edition of the Metrospective. I'm Pete McCarthy, along with Tim Britton. Say hi, Tim. Hi, Pete. <laughs> and uh, we have the pleasure of this podcast to be joined by one of the great relievers in the, in the history of the Mets and maybe the most popular reliever over the last 30 years or so, and that is uh, Turk Wendell. And uh, Turk, it's great to talk with you. Uh, how are you? How you doing? How you holding up through all of this? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, very nice things you said, which I don't know if they're true, but <laughs> thank they're you true very to me. Much. Well, if you talk to Mets fans about reliever pitchers, Mets fans don't like most relievers. You're one of the few that people will actually smile and say, "Ah, Turk Wendell, good times." <laughs> well, I uh, I loved in New York. I loved playing there, and you know terrified to go there at first i wouldn't say terrified but i just never wanted to play in big cities i just felt big cities are kind of intimidating for me i'm more of a small town guy and it uh, was the best thing that ever happened to me as far as my career goes for sure so you never wanted to play in big cities so you just played in chicago new york and philadelphia right that that was how you how you planned it out yeah yeah well i mean chicago is a big city but it's spread out so it doesn't feel like it's a big city um and I grew up in Western Massachusetts, and I'm a Red Sox fan, so I hate the Yankees. And that's one of the reasons I never wanted to, like, I said I didn't want to play in New York because I don't like big cities and I don't like the Yankees. I had nothing against the, the Mets or anything. But <clears throat> as everybody says, whatever you're thinking, you should never say out loud because the baseball gods are always listening. Well, if you're a big Red Sox no, fan, you well, might have had one thing against the Mets. Well, I, I didn't uh, I didn't really dislike the Mets or anything. Yeah, it's bummed when they lost in '86, but um, you know that's just the way it goes. How old were you then? Like, were you watching Game Six in particular when the ball went? Oh down? yeah, I was in uh, I was in college, freshman year in college or it, sophomore year in college. Sorry, '86. And you went to Quinnipiac, so you would have been right in the middle there where maybe there were some Mets fans, some Red Sox fans, you had the whole mix. Yeah, we were, uh, I remember my college roommate's family was in our apartment and uh, my family was there. We played a fall baseball game and <clears throat> I think it was Dave Henderson hit the home run. We were all jumping up and down, hugging each other, and which I think that home run was in Anaheim, but uh, yeah, getting, that's what helped us get to the World Series. So what was it like for you when you found out you were being traded to the Mets? Uh, it maybe wasn't the best thing in your mind because you're going to a, to a big city, but what opened you up to New York and made you say, hey, this can work for me? Well, I was disappointed because I, I loved Chicago and I'd already been traded once from the Braves to the Cubs, but I hadn't gotten to the big leagues with the Braves. And I just was one of those more, uh, traditional guys where I wanted to play my whole career if I was fortunate enough to have what you call a career with the same team. And when I got traded, I was very disappointed because that wasn't going to happen. And um, like I said, I just, just the whole big city thing. Uh, but in retrospect, I probably was, uh, you know, I love Chicago. I love the fans, but the Cubs at the time were owned by Wrigley, or uh, not Wrigley, but um, shoot, the Tribune. Mm-hmm. So it was really run like it was really run like a business, and there was no um, extra baseballs or anything kind of like that. It was it was very they were very very frugal, 
and you got a hat to start spring training, another hat to start the season, and then you got another new hat after the All-Star break. Now, in, in New York, anytime you have any kind of dirt on your hat, they put a new one in your locker, mm-hmm. which bummed me out because the clubhouse guy would change my hat, and I'd go, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> my lucky hat, I'm doing good with it. <laughs> but uh, and in Chicago, if you ripped your pants, they patched them or they uh, sewed them, and you had one pair of pants for BP and another pair of pants for the games. Now, in New York, you have six jerseys in your locker, four or five pairs of pants. They ripped them. Well, that guy would throw them away. And I used to say, hey, Charlie, what are you doing? I mean, you could give them to some kid or something. I'm sure they would love to have somebody's pants. But that's just how they did things. And New York, you know, and in Chicago, we was squirrel baseball. You know, every day we'd probably take one ball or every couple of days we'd take a ball during batting practice and uh put it in our locker and then get a box of them so you could ship them home to yourself so you'd have baseballs to throw with in the off season. In New York, they'd send a case of baseballs home to your house. You didn't have to worry about it. It was just, uh, it, I, I, I just want to say sometimes they treated you like you're a big leaguer, but I, I don't really like to say that because I don't think you're any better than anybody else because you're a big league baseball player, but you, um, yeah, I don't know. They just they they treat you like you've accomplished something, and they treat you, um, you know, not like just an employee. And you know, I can think of six times off the top of my head that we went to dinner, the entire team and families, to Morton's on the Mets dime, and they were like twenty five thousand dollar dinners. Mm. It was crazy, crazy. That would never happen in Chicago when I played there. Who's the one bringing up the biggest charges at Morton's on those teams you played for? Uh, I don't know. I think Piazza was a guy that he's a big wine connoisseur, and I don't drink, never, never have, never tried it. But I didn't know what this Opus stuff was, and it was something like a thousand dollars a bottle. It was crazy. I couldn't believe that a bottle of wine would cost that much. What was it like? How how much did the guys get along? I mean, you were there for some really good Mets teams, 99, 2000, even 98, the, the run late to try to get into the postseason. Uh, I mean, the idea of having all 25 guys go out to dinner kind of seems foreign. Uh, was that a, an odd experience in the, with the teams that you played for? And, and how tight would you say, you know, those teams were? Well, it, was, it wasn't uncommon. I, in Chicago, I remember going out to dinner with probably six or seven guys. And we went to a Morton's in Cincinnati, and the bill was something like, uh, I want to say it was either $4,600 or $6,400. And I forget who said it, but they said, hey, let's play the credit card game. I didn't know what the credit card game was. <laughs> I don't know if you guys do, but it's where you, everyone throws a credit card in a hat, and the waitress or waiter picks that out, picks the card out of the hat, and that's who pays. So... They explained it to me. Now I'm sitting there getting alligator arms because I'm going, crap, that's going to be my whole paycheck because <laughs> I'm just a rookie, you know. And uh, Grace and McCray started squabbling over, and I think McCray ended up picking up the tab on that one. So I, I, I dodged a bullet there. But uh, when I got to New York, it was it was pretty common for uh, seven, eight guys, sometimes more, to go out to dinner and – I kind of took that over when I went to Philadelphia and I remember Randy Wolf. we were in Milwaukee and I got a bunch of guys to go to dinner at a Benihana's and 
probably three quarters of the way through dinner, Randy says, This is this is awesome. And I said, What are you talking about? I said, Well, he says, uh, you know, I've been in the big leagues like three or four years and no we've never done this. This is really cool that we're all here together having dinner. And so uh, it's just a you know, a lot of times you don't see guys unless you're at the ballpark in the big leagues. Your closest friends are in the minor leagues because no one has any money and you're hanging out in the hotel rooms or on bus rides playing cards or watching movies or something. And it certainly you know, helps you to have that kind of team morale. Now, if you're out at a you know a big dinner like that, are you, are you brushing your teeth between courses? <laughs> no. You know, t- truth be told, um, so I got to the big leagues in 93. I was up and down in 93, up and down in 94. Well, 95 rolls around, and – Jim Riggleman is our manager for the Cubs now. The very first day of spring training, after practice, he pulls me aside and says, I don't want you doing any of that stuff anymore. I think you have a great arm, and I want people to see your arm. So so from 95 right up until I retired in 2005, I never did any of that stuff ever again, believe it or not. (laughs) Well, you did jump over the line. I mean, you you spiked the rosin bag. There were things we could see. Correct, but I, I didn't do the brushing of the teeth or the black licorice anymore. He just said, I want people to talk about your arm, not all that other stuff. Which helped me. I mean, it, it helped me grow as, as a player and a person. Now, I've heard you talk about, you know, it's about the routine, that you have to have a, a certain routine, and, and these were some things that could put you in the, the right frame of mind for a period. Yeah. Yep. That, uh, <clears throat> it's just getting yourself into a comfort zone, really. Now, how about you talked about what you liked about New York in terms of joining the Mets. What about the city itself? I mean, were you a guy who would, yeah, obviously we talk about going to Morton's, but, uh, we check things out in the city. Did you stay somewhere maybe a little more small townish and then commute in from Connecticut or Jersey or wherever? No, I stayed in my first year. I lived in Port Washington, and I lived closer to the field in, in Bayside. And I, I'm just – I was a guy that was always at the ballpark. So I would be there sometimes 11 in the morning for a 7 o'clock game. In day games, I would be there at 5, 5.30 in the morning, sometimes 6 at the latest. 5.30 in the morning you get to the ballpark? Yeah. Heck, in spring training, I was always – I was always uh, – there before the trainers and everything else in Chicago, Yoshi Kawano was our clubhouse guy, and I would pick him up. Uh, and I, I stayed at the team hotel, and I would meet him in the lobby about 4:30 and bring him when I went to the ballpark. I'd bring him. When you look at that '99 season, that that was kind of the year everything first came together for the Mets. You, you guys made the playoffs after coming so close in '98. What was it about that team that you think made that? Get, get over that hump and into the postseason and then, you know, having uh, some pretty memorable playoff series that year? Well, I think the biggest attribute to the, to the 99 team 90, and 2000 team was, you know, I guess we only had one real big superstar in Piazza, but the beauty of it is, is nobody cared who the hero was of today's game as long as we won the game. There wasn't a lot of uh, or any animosity or jealousy or I want to be better than this guy or this guy shouldn't be playing. I should be playing type of thing where 
I experienced a lot of that in Chicago and, and, and that was not every player, but it's just, we were usually out of the race by July. So most of the time guys have nothing else to play for, but your own statistics. And it, it didn't really teach a team concept. And, you know, Sosa, he could care less if we lost 14 to one, if he hit a home run, then he was happy. Well, how about, you know, the fact that you were able to pitch 80 games in 99 at the end of the 98 season, you threw in like nine out of 10 days. You threw both ends of a double header in the middle of uh, of that stretch as well. What was it about you that enabled you to pitch day after day after day and to have that kind of rubber arm quality out of the pen? Well, I don't consider rubber arm. I just consider it in uh, conditioning and endurance and strength. And it's a mindset that I've always took it out um to I have one shot at this and I'm going to make the most of it and I would train mentally and I would train physically to prepare to pitch every single day and that's why I would get to the ballpark uh, so much longer earlier before uh, a lot of the other players because I would run five to eight miles every day before games depending on how much I pitched or how little I pitched that dictated uh, how far I would run or how long I would run. And I, when I was in a minor leaguer, I was a starting pitcher. And the day after I pitched was my biggest work day, and I would run for two hours, no more than three hours. Wow. No less than two hours. And I, I'm just a big, big fan of running because the stronger you are, the you know, the better you're going to be. And that mentality of this is my game and, if if the game goes 12 innings, I'm going to be out there for all 12 innings. And I, I had that all through high school and college. And heck, my last college game was the regional um, NCAA regional tournament. I pitched 15 innings, gave up a dinger in the 15th inning, lost. And that was my last college game. With that in mind, how, how tough was, you know, that's a that's as much of a starter's mentality as you could have. How tough was it then as a pro to adjust to, to being in the bullpen? Well, it was just, coming up with a different new routine to pitch every day. And as starters, you know, they, it's kind of funny. It, to me, that's the difference between most guys for longevity in the big leagues. Is they all, all the guys have a good routine and they stick with it. Some of the younger guys don't have a routine. They just don't last. And it was definitely a huge adjustment to uh, figure out how to mentally and physically prepare myself every day. And uh, it, it's, it was funny because we would always do that running after batting practice. The pitchers do some running on the foul lines or on the warning tracks. We call that eyewash because every guy has already done his physical running or conditioning for the day before any of that even happens. And every day I would sit there and say, uh, you know, like Al Leiter or somebody. Hey, Al, come on, we're going to go run now. Oh, no, I already did my running. i got to pitch tomorrow. I'm like, well, hell, I might pitch in freaking two hours. <laughs> you know, you can't do these stupid little 20-yard sprints because you might have to pitch tomorrow or you do have to pitch tomorrow. So it's just kind of funny how they get into their routines. And that's just the way it is. I mean, it, it's kind of funny because every guy – like I said, with longevity, and it's usually about the four-year mark. Guys in four years or longer, I think, have a routine, and they just they stick with it. They tweak it here and there, but 
you know, it doesn't matter what happened the day before. They stick to their routine. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, just bored, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving, thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. It's about to heat up in New York. Summer is coming, so make sure to thin your thicket. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. You don't need that. Shaving is about to be nick-free, thanks to Manscaped Advanced Skin Safe Technology. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-shaping Manscaped Boxer Briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code THEATHLETIC. Who else was a super hard worker that stands out in your mind all these years later on those Mets teams? Oh, uh, well, obviously my buddy Rick Reed. I mean, he he was he would run with me a lot of the times. I would some of the starters would run with me on occasion. Um <clears throat> for my long distance running. Um and with the Phillies and stuff, some of the younger guys said they'd run with me and then a couple of times, you know, I wasn't there to babysit them. If they weren't there when I was ready to go, I left. And I had conversations about that with some of them saying, you know, basically exactly what I said. I'm not here to babysit you. I'm not going to mess up my routine to wait on you because you're doing something else. But um, Bobby Jones was a pretty hard worker. Um, like <laughs> The white Bobby Jones, the righty. The other Bobby Jones, the lefty. And a lot of people don't know that. We used to joke about it. Uh, black Bobby Jones, white Bobby Jones. <laughs> Um, it's kind of hard to see sometimes the guys work ethic because they're always off doing their own thing. It's not like everyone's sitting in the weight room at the same time, whether you're on a treadmill or you're lifting weights or you're working with the strength conditioning coaches. So it's uh, um, a little different in that aspect. Was it like, uh, you know, watching the Chiefs win the Super Bowl with, uh, you know, little Pat Mahomes, I suppose, who uh, you would have seen in the, the clubhouse growing up? Oh, it was pretty cool, and I actually got to meet up with Pat the week before uh, we coached together. We coached a team, uh, the Mets Fantasy Camp, and uh, we joked around about it because, you know, I said, man, I'm just so so proud of your son because, I mean, not because he's doing as great as he is, it's because he's become such a great athlete because I never thought he'd really amount to anything because – Pat would come to the clubhouse some days and go, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with my kid. He won't sleep. He said he'd go to bed at night and the kid would stay up all the night long. He'd get up in the morning, he'd still be awake sitting there watching cartoons. So I said, he's probably watching game films. You just didn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. Yeah. That's the key to becoming a great athlete is insomnia. (laughs) Yeah, I tell you what, that's, I, I can kind of attest to that, not that, that I was a great athlete, but when I played, I slept maybe four hours a night. Babe Ruth, Roberto Clemente, I mean, all guys that c- couldn't sleep at night at all uh, often, but I know, well, it never I, works. Rumor has it, Babe Ruth couldn't sleep because he was out carousing. That's right. <laughs> All-timer on, uh, on that list there. 
What was it like, um, you know, playing with someone like Ricky Henderson? I have a mandatory interview rule. If someone played with Ricky Henderson, you ask about Ricky. Uh, what was it like playing with him? Who? <laughs> I, I say that jokingly <laughs> because Ricky didn't know anybody's name. <laughs> Well, that uh, John Olerud story we hear, sometimes it's apocryphal and, and nobody's really quite backed it up, but everyone wants to believe that he, uh, he, he well, recognized him that in was, Seattle. That was, that was made up by our trainer, our assistant trainer, Scott Lawrenson, and then I somehow got into Sports Illustrated. But it was it was something that wouldn't have shocked anybody if he actually really said that because he didn't know anybody's names. And we would quiz him sometimes on the bus. I remember one specifically uh, account where we put the light on Glendon Rush and we said, Ricky, who's this? And he said, oh, that's old lefty. I mean, he knew he was a left-handed pitcher, but he didn't know who he was. And then there was another another joke uh, that I think it was Benia Henderson, Ray Ordonez. I'm not sure who else. They all jumped in a cab. And they were in Atlanta. We were in Atlanta, and the, the cabbie was all excited. They got Bobby Bonilla and Ricky Henderson. He's like, I, I don't know who you are. And Ricky said, that's Ray Cadones. He didn't even know how to say his name or know his name. But I don't know. When I played with Ricky, he was in the twilight of his career, and he he wasn't the best teammate. But when he wanted to play, he was good. And there was, those days were few and far between. So, you know, he had an unbelievable career, obviously, but uh, I probably would have enjoyed playing with him more when he was in his heyday than the twilight of his career. Turk, Pete and I have had this debate with a couple of our other guests about the 99 team versus the 2000 team. You know, the 2000 team got to the World Series, obviously, but I think for a lot of Mets fans, they still look at that 99 team as, as maybe the better team. You you played huge roles on both of them. Do you have a feeling that, that one was better than the other? You know, I've never been asked that question. I've never compared each team. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, we had we had good bullpens. We had good starting pitching. Um, you know, you just sit there and reflect on the 99 season and you can't help but not think about poor Kenny Rogers walking, uh, I believe it was Andrew Jones to, to lose, which Andrew Jones would swing it just about anything. But it's just, you know, that was, that was pretty much just, a pretty shitty deal for for Kenny because he had such a great career too and such a great guy that um, that that happens. But uh, I I just think that '99 was such a magical kind of thing. So was 2000. But you know, especially that Game Six where we came back and Piazza hits a freaking 99 mile an hour home run off of Smoltz and I don't know. But I would I guess I would have to. If I had to choose, I would say the 2000 team was better, not just because we got to the World Series, but we just had, I think, a closer knit group of guys. Um, the 99 team, we had we had Henderson, we had Benia, and that was, in, and then again, and, and then the NLCS in Game Six, where we had the whole big controversy with Benia and Henderson playing cards in the clubhouse during the game. That's it. Wrong with you? Oh hell yeah, it did. I mean, they acted like it was a spring training game, and 
it's, I mean, there's two guys that are veterans that know better than to do something like that. And just because they're not the game anymore, I mean, it just showed everyone that they could, they didn't care. Hmm. It was all about them. And you know, one-on-one, I mean, they're great guys too, but it just, um, that's it wrong with the, with the rookies that were on the team. I remember Jay Payton was really pissed, and he'd only been in the big leagues a couple of months. You know, a name that you mentioned a little while ago is Andrew Jones, and I was looking at uh, guys that you faced in your career. You faced Andrew Jones more than anybody else, and you you dominated him. So you, you said, just make him swing at anything off the plate. Is that the way you, you went at him? No, I, I don't know. I, I had, I guess, him and McGuire were two guys that people always talk about my success against. And, you know, there's just certain guys that maybe they just didn't pick the ball up off me that well or something. Cause there was some balls I threw in there that I thought they were going to absolutely hammer. Um, I guess I just, you know, I got lucky with, with those guys. What was it like for you going back to city field last year or go back to Queens, I suppose, uh, you know, you played at Shea, but being around Mets fans again and, and having that. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy interacting with the fans, um, and it's kind of nice to get to know fans and for them to get to know me as a person because, and I hear it all the time, that I'm nothing like they thought I was. Um, most people think I'm this wild, crazy, beer-drinking, hearty guy where they find out I've never even ever tried drinking alcohol or uh, a drug or a cigarette or anything. I just love life and that's good, clean living. And, you know, truth be told, when I got on the mound to play, I absolutely love baseball. So I had to, you know, and if I got to play for 10 minutes a day, I was lucky. And I had to make the most of that time. How about your, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Turk. I was going to say, that's one of the reasons why I um, would run so much because I have so much energy. And that's why I only slept four hours a day because I was always up early in the morning golfing, fishing, turkey hunting, deer hunting, doing something. Um, I just had to basically tire myself out so I didn't get on the mountain and act like a total lunatic. <laughs> and one day, one day I was coming back from running and we were in Toronto and Steve Phillips pulls me aside as I'm coming in the clubhouse. And he says, uh, you know, how far did you run today? I said, I don't know. I, I ran for like two hours. And he goes, don't you think you're doing too much? And I started laughing because most of the time I said to him, Steve, Steve, usually it's you're kicking a guy in the ass telling him he's got to work harder. <laughs> I said, but I said, I know my body and I know what I have to do to prepare myself if I'm able to pitch today. So I don't let the team down. I don't let myself down. And I said, you know, I, I figured it out. And every day the strength coach would go around to all the pitchers and ask them, did you do work today? Did you do work today? What did you do? Whatever. The strength coach never had to ask me that. And if, if I didn't run on a particular day, it was because my body told me I needed to take a day off. And that's something that you just have to be really in tune with your body and it's all about, you know, preparation and playing smarter and not harder and practicing smarter and not harder. There are certain times when you don't want to have to go to the doctor's office to get help for a medical condition. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, 
you want treatment as soon as possible. So that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com Mets for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. And in terms of keeping yourself busy, I worked with Jim Duquette for a while, and I know you guys go back. He told me a story that he was having an issue with his garden, uh, the deer were getting in it or something, and you were <laughs> you were happy to help him out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Duke's a great guy, great family. Duke and I have been friends since she's, I don't know, probably... I don't think it was elementary school, but middle school for sure, Little League, and played Babe Ruth in high school, Legion Ball, and Collegian Ball together. Um, yeah, he, he had some problems. He was living up in Connecticut, so the deer season opened September 15th up there, so we uh, took care of a few things for him. <laughs> you said he woke up, uh, got it up, you know, he looks out the window, and uh, there's two guys in camouflage walking around his backyard. <laughs> Yeah, me and Mike Kincaid. <laughs> how about uh, how about your son Wyatt? I know that he's um, you know he's been playing. He's, a, he's a, a major league prospect. Does he have the same love for the game, work ethic that that you've talked about so much in this interview? You know what? And I'm not saying anything because he's my kid, and a lot of people always ask me, well, you know, what about him? And I always just say, and I really don't like to talk about him as far as his skill level, just you watch him and you decide for yourself. But he is, he's just a great kid. And even in high school, hell, I'd be asleep and it's one thirty in the morning. What the hell is that noise? He's in there doing arm exercises and, and working out in his bedroom because he just finally got done with his homework, whatever. And I told him at a, at a very early age, probably four years old, five years old, hey, if you want to play baseball, I'll help you as much as I can, but you got to understand one thing. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot, a lot of conditioning, physically, mentally. And there was times five, six years old, he would say, come on, dad, sit down with me, watch the ball game. I want to learn about pitches and, you know, why is this guy doing this? And at six years old, he could tell you that guy did, got out on his front foot because he didn't stay back on a breaking ball or a changeup. And his work ethic is just crazy. It's just, you know, I can't be more proud of him. And he's, you know, carried that on right through college or into college. And um, I guess one of the coolest things, but it was embarrassing for him. Um, and it happened again this year. But last year as a freshman in college, the coach got really pissed at the pitchers. And I guess they were just being lazy or something. And he said, I'm sick and tired of this shit from now on. I want everybody to do what Wyatt does. Wyatt goes running, you go running. If Wyatt does arm exercises, you do arm exercises. If Wyatt takes a dump, you guys go take a dump. 
And, you know, he's a freshman. There's, he's a junior college, so there's a lot of sophomores. And he thought, well, you know, they're going to be pissed at me. And I said, hey, buddy, you're not there to make friends. You're there to get to the next level. And if those guys are pissed at you, they're just more pissed at themselves because you're working harder than they are. And they're jealous. And they, you know, it's sad, but it's just the way it goes. And then this year, the very first day of uh, practice, after the practice is about over, he asked Wyatt to stand up, and he told the new kids, this is Wyatt Wendell, and, you know, I promise you no one will work harder than Wyatt does. I encourage you to try to. And I said, Wyatt, he said, Wyatt, uh, he doesn't walk around here with a chip on his shoulder like anybody owes him anything because his dad played in the big leagues. He himself will play in the big leagues. And if you guys want to play in the big leagues, you should work as hard as he does. And it's pretty cool that the coach would acknowledge that. And But Wyatt gets really embarrassed by it. Really embarrassed by it. How does dad feel and when he cool hears thing, those stories? Well, it's pretty cool. I mean, to think that the coaches really look up to him and, and they see it. And, uh, you know, the cool thing, too, is he's an academic All-American. My daughter's an academic All-American as well as a, a soccer All-American. Um, and it, it's just cool that they're carving their own way. And, you know, I, I truth, it's like Mahomes said, he goes, I used to be Pat Mahomes, and and now, uh, now I'm Patrick Mahomes' dad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't want Wyatt, you know, old Turk Wendell's kid, Wyatt Wendell. I want, hey, that's, uh, that's, you know, just the opposite. Why Wendell, that's his dad. He played in the big leagues too. Something like that, you know. Just I, I I know he has what it takes. It just he just needs to throw a little bit harder and he's finally he's a little bit over he's almost six foot six now. He's getting up to almost two hundred and ten pounds. So hopefully he can jump up to ninety five, ninety six miles an hour better on a fastball. He's definitely got the projectability to do that. Um so I, I truly believe if somebody gives him a chance, he will not disappoint him. And then Turk, when when you look back on your your tenure with the Mets, is there is there a game, a moment, an out you got uh, that sticks out as as a favorite for you? Uh, well, I mean, I was known for throwing a lot of breaking balls, a lot of sliders, and I can I can think of one that was pretty funny. Uh, Came in a pretty crucial situation. I think it might have been first and second at Shea day game, and Mark McGuire was up two outs, and I threw him three straight fastballs, and he stood there and, and struck out looking, and then he kind of looked at me like, "What the hell?" Because <laughs> most of the time it would be ten, eleven, twelve sliders in a row. And then you know you're sitting there going, "Okay, this one's got to be a fastball," but that's a game within the game. And then if you threw a fastball, well, then they're sitting on slider because you're thinking, okay, there's a fastball. Now he's going to throw like 20 sliders in a row. But to throw three fastballs in a row, <laughs> McGuire is just going, what the hell is this all about? He so could his powers, Mark fun. McGuire, in those days. Yeah, exactly. Was he as intimidating a batter as you faced? Nope. I, uh, I think I might have faced him, I don't know, something like 18, 19 times. I think I struck him out 15. 
something stupid. It was, it was crazy. And like I said, he's another he's a guy like Andrew Jones. I just think he didn't can pick the ball up off me real well. Well, Turk Wendell, it's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit and, and talking and, and reliving your days uh, with the New York Mets. And uh, stay safe through all of this. Where's home for you now? Where have you been hanging out? I live in God's country, gentlemen, Iowa. Iowa, all right. So you got the kids there, yeah. or is everybody uh, running around? Uh, Wyatt, Wyatt is here. My daughter's in Mankato. She works for the Mankato Police Department, so she's uh, still working. Well, good. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, again, great talking to you, Turk. Thank you for the time. All right. Y'all do the same thing. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye.